0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The reign of Queen Victoria is remembered principally for two things imperialism and prudishness. Sexual repression was the watchword of the era. Fashion trends soon saw women in dresses that reached from their jawbone to the ground. A glimpse of ankle was so scandalously arousing that even tablecloths got longer, lest a proper gentleman accidentally see a particularly well-turned table leg. Except, despite that being what we know about the Victorian age, less than half of what I just said is true. My name's
1: Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Get ready to geek out! The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Julius Caesar was born by cesarean section. That's where the name comes from. No. A Caesarean or C-section is the medical term for the surgical delivery of a baby by cutting through the abdomen and uterus, and it's widely held that Caesarean sections got their name from the famous Roman ruler Gaius Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar had been touted for centuries as the first person, or at least the first soon-to-be-famous person to be born that way. Therefore, the process was called a Caesarean. It's Apocrypha that's been copy-pasted for a long time— much longer than Washington and the Cherry Tree, which we talked about in the first installment of his story way back in February of 2018. That was before I was numbering the episodes. The surgical removal of a baby from the womb was already a thing before Caesar was born, so he wasn't the first to be on the receiving end of it, much less to bestow its name. In fact, he wasn't even born that way. The idea has been repeated since a 10th century Byzantine-Greek historical encyclopedia called the Suda, which said, "...the emperors of the Romans received this name from Julius Caesar, who was not born. For when his mother died in the ninth month, they cut her open, took him out, and named him thus. For in the Roman tongue, dissection is called Caesar." So the text states that the Caesarians are not named after Caesar, but Caesar is named after the Caesarians." In Latin, cesus, or casus, I did not do well in Latin, is the past participle of Cadere meaning to cut. And I can’t speak to the veracity of the Latin and feel free to at me at BrainonFactspod on Twitter and your brain on facts on Facebook and Instagram. But one thing that is clear is that Caesar wasn’t born by C-section. At the time that Gaius Julius was born, the practice of cutting a baby from its mother was actually required by law, but only if the mother had died. Known as the Lex Caesarea, the law was established hundreds of years before Gaius Julius was born, in the time of Numampopilius, about 715 to 673 BCE, stating that if a pregnant woman died, the baby had to be taken from her womb. This was to comply with Roman ritual and religious customs that forbade the burial of pregnant women. The Lex's area doesn't mention the child surviving. That wasn't what they were concerned with. Religious practice at the time was very clear that a mother could not be properly buried if she was still pregnant. That was the original purpose of the procedure. Somewhere along the line, ambitious physicians thought it might be possible to take what had been a post-mortem preparation and turn it into life-saving medicine. For the child, at least. As a testament to the fact that women did not survive Caesareans back then, the Lex Caesarea requires a living mother be past the 40th week of pregnancy before the procedure was performed. This meant the best chance of survival for the child in Carrie, as well as reflecting an acceptance that the mother was not going to survive. A situation that continued until the late 19th century. Combine that new information with the fact that Caesar's mother was alive until he was an adult— and the whole idea falls apart. Not only had his mother Aurelia survived delivering Gaius Julius, she was heavily involved in his upbringing, a prototype of today's helicopter parenting. Quick bonus fact, the word helicopter isn't made up of heli and copter, but from helix for spiral and pteron for wing, like the word pterodactyl. With scrupulous piety and modesty, the historian Tacitus wrote, She regulated not only the boy's studies and occupations, but even his recreations and games. Aurelia raised Gaius Julius herself, rather than shunting him off to nurses. She helped him out of a particularly bad scrape when his refusal to divorce his current wife made the whole family the target of a powerful enemy. And when Caesar was away on campaigns, Aurelia kept a close watch on his next wife, Pompeia, to make it more difficult for her to cheat on Caesar with her lover, Clodius. And Aurelia died ten years before Julius Caesar did, so obviously not in childbirth. Speaking of smart mothers, you can find a lot of smart mothers in the Facebook group, The Brainiac Breakroom, which you can find at facebook.com/groups/plural/brainiacbreakroom where I post whatever interesting things I find on the internet during the day that don't fit with that week's theme and therefore don't make it to the main social feeds. And you can post on there too. Just as our buddy Sean Klaus Morse posted last week, in 1641, the Massachusetts colony passed a law that allowed parents to take their children to court for disobedience and sentence them to death. The law was later amended to include girls and was not repealed until 1973. Thank goodness all of our parents didn't know about that law when we were teenagers. There are also lots of smart cookies over in the member rolls of patreon.com yourbrainonfacts. There won't be an episode of Spot the Lie for December, what with the holidays and jobs and kids and such. So look for a regular plain old bonus episode, which I often do on topics that are a bit too blue for the main show, coming in the next few days. While C-sections were a death sentence for most of history, there is a case, believed to be the only one of its kind, of a woman and child surviving after she gave herself a caesarean section without a doctor. In March of 2000, in southeast Mexico, Inez Ramirez Perez went into labor for her eighth time at the age of 40. She had six living children but had lost baby number seven to complications with the delivery. After 12 hours of difficult labor, with the nearest hospital 50 miles away and her husband at a nearby bar that had no phone, Perez decided drastic measures were called for. She took several swigs from a bottle of liquor to dull the pain and used a six-inch knife to make three vertical incisions in her abdomen. She had no medical training, but drew on what she knew of the internal structures of animals that she'd butchered. After about an hour of grueling work, the likes of which I certainly cannot imagine. She was able to pull the baby boy out of her own womb, cut the umbilical cord, and then pass right the f*** out. When she regained consciousness, Perez sent her six-year-old to town to find help. He returned with a local health aide, who sewed up Perez's wounds with ordinary needle and thread. Other health aides then arrived and helped transport Perez and the newborn Orlando, to a hospital eight hours away where doctors were able to patch her up properly. The obstetricians at the hospital marveled at Perez's self-administered surgery. She hadn't hit any internal organs, apart from the one she was aiming for, had no internal bleeding, and no infection set in. The doctors would eventually publish her story in the International Journal of Gynecology and Obstetrics, which helped to shine a light on the plight of women who live in remote locations without access to adequate medical care. If you're a husband who wants to avoid any baby surprises and you're going a little farther afield than the local cantina, say on a crusade or a pilgrimage, may we suggest that you invest in a handy-dandy chastity belt. These devices have been used since the Middle Ages to prevent wives from having sexual intercourse in their husbands' absence. Ride away with the only key, safe in the knowledge that your marital assets will remain unpurloined until your return. To this day, metal and leather chastity belts reside in museum cases around the world, testament to their effectiveness, or at least to the potent mix of paranoia and misogyny. According to curators at the Semmelweis Museum in Budapest, which displays an exhibition on the history of chastity belts in 2010, The belts were thought to have been introduced as an answer to unchecked female promiscuity when knights left for battle. The inclination to believe the myth of the chastity belt is understandable, though. In medieval Europe, any sexual activity that did not lead to the conception of a baby within wedlock was forbidden. According to Albrecht Clausen, author of The Medieval Chastity Belt, A Myth-Making Process, the devices were first mentioned in a Treatise on Siege Machines written by Konrad Kaiser in 1405. Kaiser was a German engineer and artist, and the concept for the chastity belt appeared in the afterword of his Treatise, wherein he described the belt as an imaginative joke. Kaiser's book also contained fart jokes, a fanciful elevator, and invisibility devices. His is one of the few contemporary sources found to mention chastity belts at all, and clearly one not to be taken too seriously. The more that academics search for references, the more they begin to question the authenticity of these devices. No author of sermon literature, of penitentiary texts, or didactic and legal writings have ever mentioned the chastity belt, probably because already the basic idea behind it defies the basic needs of the female body. Clausen wrote. Leslie Smith, a scholar of late 16th century history and curator for Tutbury Castle in the UK, agrees. In a 2007 article for the British Medical Journal, she wrote, I have traveled abroad and looked at art collections and as yet haven't seen a chastity belt that can be proved to be medieval in origin. Not only is there scarce historical evidence that chastity belts were an actual undergarment in the Middle Ages, there's no logic to support their existence either. A chastity belt might stop your wife from fooling around while you're gone, but it could just as well kill her before you get back. The historic examples in museums and books are mostly made or entirely made of metal. Female listeners, and frankly all listeners, would do well to hearken to the classic maternal advice that cotton underpants are best because they breathe. If nylon could cause trouble, imagine what iron would do. Extant chastity belts have holes for urination, menstruation, and defecation, but let's be real. Would a person who would commission one of these really be well-versed enough in female anatomy to line up those holes correctly? Even if you could wash sufficiently, keeping the skin under the iron dry would be impossible. Then there's the chafing. Even the most demure lady would move enough to cause the metal to irritate her skin, in short order causing wounds that are destined to get infected. Maybe they were lined or padded with something, you say? Okay, but fabric, leather, and horsehair could stop the metal from touching the skin, but that's basically like wearing a petri dish next to your lady garden. Clausen likens the chastity belt myth to another widely held and similarly incorrect belief, That medieval people thought the earth was flat. Some outliers did, but the vast majority of people accepted that it is, in fact, round. People might be quick to believe that people of olden times were backwards and ignorant because it makes them look more advanced and civilized by comparison. Chastity belts and other medieval relics were all the rage in Victorian society particularly. In fact, certain enterprising Victorian businessmen used the chastity belt myth as a selling point for a similar metallic unmentionable design to protect women from rape. They did not, however, overcome any of the original design flaws. There were also male versions to stop young men from interfering with themselves. It was the people of the 19th century, not the 9th, who crafted the chastity belts that are on display in museums now.
1: So, stay updated with the award winning journalism from Wired. Listen to what's new with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's what's new with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The Victorians also gave us Iron Maidens. No, not Iron Maiden, capitalized. The Iron Maiden, as in the sarcophagus-shaped, spike-encrusted torture device. When many people think about the Middle Ages, they see it as a time when people were tortured by a wide variety of diabolical instruments. These instruments stand on display in museums and populate every form of media. The fact that they, like the chastity belt, didn't exist in the way or in the when that we've been told they existed hasn't dampened our interest in the slightest says L. A. Perry in his book, The History of Torture in England, What strikes us most in considering the medieval tortures is not so much their diabolical barbarity, which is indeed impossible to exaggerate, as the extraordinary variety and what may have been termed the artistic skill they displayed. They represent a condition of thought in which men had pondered long and carefully on all the forms of suffering, had compared and combined different kinds of torture, till they had become the most consummate masters of their art, had expanded on the subject all the resources of the utmost ingenuity, and had pursued it with the ardor of a passion. How could you not want to read about something like that? The first reference to the Iron Maiden came at the end of the 18th century, when a writer named Johann Philipp Sybenkis described one in a guidebook to the city of Nuremberg, Germany. By his account in the year 1515 the city executed a criminal with a device that resembled an egyptian mummy case but had doors on it to allow a person to be put inside where sharp spikes would pierce their flesh slowly so that the very sharp points penetrated his arms and his legs in several paces and his belly and chest and his bladder and the root of his member and his eyes and his shoulders and his buttocks but not enough to kill him And so he remained making great cry and lament for two days after which he died. It's likely that Sabenckes invented the whole story, but he must have given the people what they wanted. By the early 19th century, the Iron Maiden was being displayed across Europe. One was even exhibited at the World's Fair in Chicago in 1893, which helped to legitimize its reputation. The Iron Maiden of Nuremberg was later denounced as a fake, but by then, the idea was deeply entrenched. The Iron Maiden was still included in medieval histories, with some books claiming it was used as far back as the 12th century. Cybenkis wasn't even the first to dream up a terrible box full of nails as a torture device. The City of God, a Latin book of Christian philosophy written in the 5th century, tells a tale of torture of the Roman general Marcus Attilius Regulus who was locked in a nail-studded box. He didn't die from being impaled, but was forced to stay awake, lest the nails pierce his skin, and eventually died of sleep deprivation. It doesn't take much reading on the topic of medieval torture devices to notice that evidence is thin on the ground. While some devices, like the rack, the pillory, stocks, Catherine wheel, those were all real, and the ancient world used such outrageous punishments as the brazen bull, a hollow metal bowl that the condemned was locked into and under which a fire was built, so that the person's cries of anguish sounded like the bull bellowing. The more bizarre, ingenious, or sadistic accounts from the Middle Ages start to look thin under scrutiny. The events recounted tend to take place in the seventeenth to nineteenth centuries, not the Middle Ages at all. Anecdotes reportedly from the Middle Ages may be included, But I wouldn't go hanging my hat on an anecdote. The first written reference to many devices also comes too late. Like the chastity belt, there are no contemporary accounts of the devices being used, even in the criminal record. The authors will mention various torture devices and usually add in some statement that while we first hear about them in the 17th century, it was undoubtedly or sure to have been also seen in medieval times. These statements never include any evidence to back up their assertions. Where we're not dealing with outright fabrication, we may be dealing with simple misinterpretation of items viewed outside of their original context. Take, for instance, the so-called Pair of Anguish. The metallic device can be found in several museums, which will note it as from the Middle Ages, but be vague on all the rest of the details. Typically, this pear-shaped item has a latch at the top, which, when triggered, will open the pair into three or four sections of spring-loaded lobes. The lobes can be screwed back together with a key. The idea behind the pair of anguish was that it could be inserted into the mouth of the victim, or other orifice depending on the offense, and then opened up, tearing the flesh and causing terrible pain. The first such object referred to as a pair of anguish appeared around the middle of the 19th century. Again, there are no accounts of the device being used in the Middle Ages, with a tiny asterisk. There is a reference to a pear-shaped object used by a well-known criminal in Paris at the turn of the 17th century, but this he apparently used to gag his victims, which seems a lot more labor-intensive than tying a piece of cloth around their mouth. The purported pears of anguish on display these days would actually have been pretty bad at the job we've decided they did. Not only would the springs have been too weak to open up a bodily orifice, but the way the latch was designed meant it couldn't be opened if it was under any tension. The devices, if they were used by anyone, could have been a prototype speculum of sorts, a brace to hold the mouth open for dental work, or even something as simple as a shoe stretcher. While the pair of anguish may have become a torture device by people not knowing what it was really intended to be, the famous Iron Maiden seems to have been a deliberate, phony invention from a more modern mind. This doesn't mean that torture didn't exist in the Middle Ages, it certainly did, and by the later medieval period was considered a legal practice not only for punishment, but for obtaining confession. However, medieval people were not as imaginative as we give them credit for, necessarily. Instead, what little we know about torture methods suggested that fairly simple methods were used— like binding people very tightly with ropes. Some so-called torture devices, like the pillory, the plank of wood with holes for the head and hands, did little to harm the individual and were designed to be more punitive. For example, several London bakers who committed fraud by selling loaves of bread smaller than what they charged for or filling out the bread with sawdust or chalk, were sentenced to spend a few hours locked in the pillory with the fake bread burnt under their faces. Quick aside, the difference between the stocks and the pillory is that the stocks restrain the ankles of a sitting person, and the pillory was used on a standing person to restrain their hands and their head. You know who's got a good head on their shoulders? The folks who boost the signal on our social media, either by sharing and retweeting or by commenting. Like the most stable genius who commented on our Weird Foods episode, the sack of fermented birds almost made me lose my breakfast. Delicacy indeed. A similar opinion was held by T Rex Scott, who said, I spent the weekend catching up on some of your shows. Now I cannot unsee maggot cheese in my brain. Keep up the great work. And thank you both for your comments. It is so gratifying to know that people really are listening. A great way to let your favorite podcaster know that you're listening is to leave them a review. And after not getting any for almost two months, we got three in about a week. One said, Outstanding Program, highly recommended, from ODM3. Of the remaining two, I'm going to read one now and one next week. So if you'd like to have your username read out loud on the show, drop us a review through Apple Podcast or your podcast player of choice. But this one comes from Little Witch Kitty, who said, I love the show, five stars. Hi, Moxie. I really enjoyed your show. I followed you over from when you were on Historical Blindness podcast. I haven't been disappointed with your content. I've been binging on all the past podcasts. I also think your mom is amazing when adding in some of her radio experience. Thank you for all that you do. And thank you, little witch kitty. They were referencing the episode that my mom guest starred on called Words You Can't Say on TV or radio. And guess what? Rock History with Joe Christie. Episode one is finally finished. And I know you're listening, mom. I'm sorry I made you edit it yourself, but you've got it now. And the next one will be a lot easier. So everybody can look for the first episode, which is, of course, about Woodstock on this feed over the weekend. And you can also follow Rock History with Joe Christie on your favorite app coming soon. So we've talked a lot about the Victorian era. Do you know what else Victorians loved? Egypt. It's a bit clunky of a segue, but it'll do. If one image had to be chosen to represent Egypt, you couldn't do better than the pyramids. These colossal structures, some originally covered in brilliant white limestone, served as the final resting place of the pharaohs, built almost in defiance of their own size by the hands of slaves. You want to guess what part of that statement I'm about to debunk? The belief that slaves were principally responsible for pyramid building likely began with the ancient Greek historian Herodotus, who described the pyramid builders as slaves. This was passed from historian to historian, eventually making its way into popular culture, like the movie Cleopatra, a garbage fire of a production that I'll get around to covering one day. In 2010, archaeologists discovered tombs more than 4,000 years old that belonged not to the royal family, but to the people who worked on the Great Pyramids of Giza, providing evidence that it was not slaves that built these ancient monuments. The series of modest, 9-foot-deep shafts held a dozen skeletons of the pyramid builders. They were perfectly preserved by the dry desert sand. Near to them were jars that once contained beer and bread meant for the afterlife. The mud-brick tombs were uncovered near the Giza pyramids, stretching beyond the burial site first discovered in the 1990s and dating to the Fourth Dynasty, which ran from 2575 BCE to 2467, when the Great Pyramids were built on the fringes of Cairo. Egypt's archaeology chief, Sahih Hawass, said that the findings show that the workers were in fact paid laborers. According to Hawass, the builders came from poor Egyptian families from the north and south, and were respected for their work. They were so respected that those who died during construction were bestowed the honor of being buried in tombs near the sacred pyramids of their pharaohs. No way would they have been buried so honorably if they were slaves, Hawass says. The tombs contained no gold or valuables, which luckily for us made them unappealing to grave robbers. The bodies were not mummified, but were arranged with their heads pointing to the west and their feet to the east, in accordance with ancient Egyptian beliefs. It took 10,000 workers more than 30 years to build a single pyramid. Evidence suggests that during that time, they worked in three-month shifts. The builders ate far better than slaves too, with meat being a staple in their diet. Further evidence from the site suggests that the workers consumed about 21 head of cattle and 23 sheep every day sent in from local farms. Though they weren't slaves, the pyramid builders did lead lives of hard labor. Their skeletons have signs of arthritis, and their lower vertebrae show various signs of wear and injury. The builders weren't slaves, and they weren't Jewish either, as usually goes hand-in-hand. Sazami Hai Mazar, professor at the Institute of Archaeology at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, no Jews built the pyramid because Jews didn't exist at the time when the pyramids were built. The Old Testament book of Exodus says, So the Egyptians enslaved the children of Israel with backbreaking labor. According to Mazar, if the Hebrews built anything... It was the city of Ramses, as mentioned in Exodus. According to Dieter Wildung, former director of Berlin's Egyptian Museum, the construction of the pyramids and the story of the Israelites in Egypt were separated by hundreds of years. The myth of the slaves building pyramids is only the stuff of tabloids and Hollywood, he told the Associated Press. The world simply could not believe the pyramids were built without oppression and forced labor, but out of loyalty to the pharaohs. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. But hopping back to the supposedly prudish Queen Victoria. For starters, she had nine children, with a husband about whom she wrote passionately in her diary and in letters. If anything, it looks like Albert was the prudish one. Queen Victoria's art collection showed a fondness for the naked human form, both female and male. And on at least three separate occasions, she gave nude paintings to Prince Albert for his birthday. And does that sound like a prude to you? Remember that you can find the script for today's show and links to the sources at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me.